0: Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm.
1: Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and theologian in residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock.
2: And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian.
1: This week we're continuing our study of Paul with Romans 3, 28-30 and 5, 1-11, in which Paul develops the idea that God loves us and justifies us even when we haven't done anything to merit God's love. We explore the possibility that Paul is critiquing the empire's merit system, in which we are asked to give up our lives for those above us in the hierarchy. But Christ is not like that. While we were yet sinners, Paul says, Christ died for us. Simply put, you are enough. Thanks for joining us. Hey Amy, how are you this week?
2: I'm good. I'm giving a Devar Torah this weekend. That is, that it's a sermon. And I reference, do you know what a vomitorium is?
1: Uh, I mean, I have images in my head of what that is, but can you tell me what it I'm is? I'm just so really
2: I- excited that I get to talk about a vomitorium in my, this is why you should never let me sermonize. And <laughs> it's, a. I mean, okay, I don't even know if this is true, but it's what my, uh, my husband and my in-laws uh, have told me. That in like, I don't know, some kind of, I think, Roman society, people would eat so much at these like big feasts, but then want to keep partying and eating. And like, you know, your tummy can only hold so much. Oh, yeah. So they had a space where people go and like purge between the meals
1: oh, my goodness. or something,
2: and then they could eat more. That
1: is so unhealthy.
2: It's a very <laughs> it's unhealthy gross. practice, but a really... Um, yeah, that would make me not really want to eat for gripping like a week.
1: image. Yeah. The
2: vomitorium.
1: So what is the text in which you're bringing <laughs> this?
2: Um, it is the Torah portion, Tazriya Mitzorah, which is the one that deals with gross body things. Oh, yeah. Skin that rashes a... and um, uh, bodily fluids of a personal nature.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like Leviticus 13 or somewhere yeah, anywhere. thereabouts. Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. I translated
1: that at Emory in one of our in one of our classes. Nobody wanted to translate it, so I volunteered that I would translate that section, and it was very in- memorable. Yeah, entertaining is not exactly the right word. Memorable is the right word. It's
2: Really, yes. Mm-hmm. There, it is quite, quite something. Anyway, that's how I'm doing this week. How are you doing? <laughs> uh,
1: I mean, I'm not that. I don't have anything that interesting. I will say that I dropped my kid off at school today and one of the other parents was coming in that I know. And I said, are y'all doing okay? And she did that thing where she shakes her head. No, while Mm -hmm. saying, yeah, we're doing fine. (laughs) And I just sort of feel like it's that kind of moment in life where, you know, uh, (laughs) The things that come yeah. out of your mouth. You know, you're doing the best. We're all doing the best we can. I sort of feel Wait, like. What that do is... you
2: mean by okay? Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Tell me we the definition
2: some, of your terms.
1: We need yeah. some definitions here. Yeah. yeah. It's just the push from the push from spring break till the end of the school year is it's rough. Well,
2: it's rough. did you tell the person that struggle build in, builds endurance <laughs> and endurance builds not, character and character? But I should have.
1: Yeah. yeah. That was beautiful.
2: Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So
1: of course you're leading us into our text for today, which does not deal with gross bodily functions. Although sadly that might even, that might be, I don't know. I might rather (laughs) talk about that. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I will say that this is a difficult text and I want to reiterate every once in a while, I feel overwhelming gratitude. I often feel overwhelming gratitude that you are uh, my partner in this podcast, but especially when we get into Paul and when we get into Romans, like. This text is a difficult text for Paul scholars. <laughs> it, is a, it is a difficult text for Christian readers. Uh, as someone who is coming from totally outside this tradition. You know, and
2: here I am.
1: <laughs> and doesn't really have that much, like, like the payoff for you to figure out what Paul is saying here is fairly low. Let's be honest. <laughs> like, this is not going to affect the way you, you know, live on Monday. Uh, Probably so not. anyway, so I'm grateful to you for wrestling through
2: And I'm grateful for you for um, tolerating my profound (laughs) ignorance.
1: (laughs) Uh. And
2: really to our listeners as well. Thanks, y'all. I don't really know much about Pauline literature, but let's ask some questions.
1: Yeah, I mean, to me, that's really useful because a lot of... A lot of people listening and, you know, a lot of people that you might be co-hosting <laughs> with don't, you know, like the questions are good. And so putting those to voice is really important. I will say uh, that I have been reading a commentary from N.T. Wright and a commentary from Beverly Gavinta. And so anything smart that I might say today is probably from them and anything mm. ridiculous that I might say today is probably from me. Uh, so there is my um, footnote, my proper citation uh, as we, as we move forward. So the Narrative Lectionary has us mostly in Romans 5, 1 to 11. It starts out with a bracketed text in Romans 3, 28 to 30. And I'm not entirely sure that we need 28 to 30 to get us into 5, 1 to 11. But I, I've never seen a bracketed text I could ignore. Like Once, once right. you put it there right? in brackets, I'm like, oh, I got to read that. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. that's the plan for today is 3, 28 to 30 and 5, 1 to 11. We introduced Paul last week and we talked about Romans one last week. So I am thinking that we are ready to dive in, but is there, are there any things you want to raise before we do that?
2: I don't think there's anything in particular that I want to raise, although I just turned to the first verse of chapter three, then what advantage has the Jew? So now this is going to be a very interesting (laughs) conversation.
1: Yeah. There's an interesting conversation. I was just talking about this in one of my classes there is a dispute among scholars about how Paul thinks about the Jews who are still Jewish. Mm -hmm. He debates a lot about Jews who have come to believe in Jesus uh, and Mm -hmm. like what their status is and what they should and should not do. But there's a debate about uh, Jews who have not, you know, who are just still Jewish Mm
0: -hmm. and whether
1: Paul is even talking about them or thinking about them. Beverly Gavinta, I'm pretty sure is the one, who argues that Paul actually just thinks there are two different covenants. There's a covenant with the Jews, and God is yet still faithful to that covenant. There is a covenant with Gentiles, newly instigated Mm -hmm. through Jesus, and God is faithful to that covenant. And people who are Jewish, like Paul, sometimes choose to follow the Jesus covenant, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. others remain in the original covenant, and that that is Mm -hmm. still fine and good with Paul. And I, I, I've decided to lean that way. That's that makes, that makes me, uh, you know, I just like that reading. Yeah. Anyway, that was not even part of our text.
2: No, but it's, but it, uh, yeah. If this is like really a central question, that's underlying all of these Pauline texts, then, you know, it's important to raise it up.
1: Yeah. And when we're thinking, you know, about how do we read a text together? And also when, people who are coming to this from a christian tradition which i assume many of our listeners are then the question of how do we read these texts without doing harm to the jewish community like that's a really really important question and we can't come back to it often enough so it's worth it's worth having it out there all right so i'm picking up then in romans chapter 3 verse 28 kind of in the middle of that verse actually we consider that a person is treated as righteous by faith apart from what is accomplished under the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Isn't God the God of Gentiles also? Yes, God is also the God of Gentiles. Since God is one, then the one who makes the circumcised righteous by faith will also make the one who isn't circumcised righteous through faith. So this kind of picks us up right in the question that we, that we were just talking about.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And so I'm just curious, I just want to ask you as a Jewish reader of this text, like when you're thinking about like, what is Paul talking about here? Are there particular points where you either get engaged or
2: mm-hmm.
1: feel yourself bristle a little bit?
2: Yeah. I mean, I feel like the, the first question that really rises up for me is when when Paul talks about, in my translation, it's works prescribed by the law. Yes. Is this an understanding of sort of law as a narrow category of, like, the things that are in the Hebrew Bible that we don't understand, that that don't, gosh, this is coming from such a modern perspective, Bobby, but, like, that that we don't understand. Like, we don't understand why would you have to do that? Why would you have to keep kosher? Why would you have to separate wool from cotton? Why would you have to, it doesn't make sense. Right. And then there are also— laws that are like related to justice in the world and how we treat the the vulnerable in our community and how we treat our neighbors. And I guess my my first read of this is that there's sort of a bifurcation of that, that like yeah. the law that like there's sort of an imagining of law as being this more narrow category that we don't understand how that could possibly have impact on God or the or the world, which is a whole category of laws and Jewish tradition, for sure. Right. Is that? Do you think that's going on here? That that when this word "law" is used, it's referring specifically to the laws that that don't make sense to him. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know, may, yeah, maybe so. I mean, I, the, my first thought was Paul is himself uh, a Pharisee who considers himself. He says, "I think it's in Galatians. He considers himself to be perfect under the law." And so by which I think he means he does the things one is supposed to do and which includes like when, when you fail to follow some sort of Torah prescription, you have ways of making mm-hmm. up for that. Mm-hmm. So when you say he doesn't understand what it means, like you mean more like it's not entirely clear why it's there.
2: Okay. Yes. Thank you. I think you he that. understands. Yeah. Yeah. He does understand. I think my question is: when he says, when he refers to the law, is he referring to the totality? Is he saying? Yeah. I, f- I just feel like it wouldn't make any sense to say a Gentile follower of God can treat their neighbor any kind of can ignore yeah. all the things that are prescribed as law in the Hebrew Bible that relate to being good to one another. Yeah.
1: No. That you know I, I mean, I see exactly what you're saying. Yes. So. Yes, I think that that is right. And also I think it's slightly more complicated than that. But I think in the first instance, what Paul is concerned about is whether a Gentile coming to this covenant with God needs to follow the sort of ritual prescriptions of the, Mm -hmm. of the law, Mm -hmm. circumcision, Mm -hmm. keep kosher, all of those sorts of things, to which the answer is clearly no. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Does Paul think that, You can then treat your neighbor any old way if you're a Gentile. I don't actually think that he does think that. So I think he's actually including, I don't know quite how to say this. His issue at the end of the day is, does the following of the Torah make a person righteous before God? Mm. And his answer is no. His answer is like an emphatic no when it comes to circumcision and things like that. I think it is also no when it comes to how you treat your neighbor. Mm -hmm. Does treating your neighbor well make you righteous before God? Paul, I think, says no. It does not. Mm -hmm. Should you still do it? Yes. Does it make you righteous? No. For the sort of ethical law. For Mm -hmm. the ritual law, it's does it make you righteous? No. Should you still do it? No.
2: So then what— Maybe this takes us to the next question. What would make you righteous if it's not how you treat your— I shouldn't say if it's not how you treat your neighbor because it's also possible that he's thinking the specific things that are prescribed in the Hebrew Bible. Like if you encounter your enemy and their animal has fallen beneath a weight and can't get up, you have to help that animal get up even though it's your enemy's animal. Yes. That's a very specific— commandment. That is, you know, we can, I can see at least how that would make society function better, make people treat each other better. But I think there's also a middle place where, where Paul could care how we treat our neighbor, but just saying the specificity of how that's laid out in the Hebrew Bible is not the thing.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think this is the crux of the matter for Paul, right? So We consider that a person is treated as righteous by faith apart from what is accomplished under the law. So people are treated as righteous based on faith, right? If they, faith can point also in two directions here. Mm -hmm. So as we talked about last week, people are treated as righteous because God is faithful to people. People are treated as righteous because people are faithful to God. Mm-hmm. The Torah then follows out of that. But the Torah mm-hmm. for him, the Torah law is not what I makes us it. justified. It's
2: not the it's that's not the foundation of it. And it's not again, I'm so glad you brought us back to that idea we talked about last time that faith is not just an intellectual belief system. Right. It is faithfulness right. which which you demonstrate through action and which God also demonstrates. It's a it's a mutual there's a mutuality and it's not just an uh it's not just in your head.
1: Right. That's that's absolutely right. And that's really important. And, you know, I feel like I have heard you say before, like, I mean, what Paul is talking about is a Jewish way of thinking, right? That the reason that you are faithful, the reason you do the works of the law is because God is faithful to you and you trust God and therefore you do all these things, right? It's mm-hmm. not that you're thinking of yourself as earning some kind of good grace from God by doing the stuff. You've already got it and therefore you do it. Is that fair to say it that way?
2: I think, yes, I think so. And I think, I think that is the ideal system. And I think as with any faith system, you can find people who are doing some sort of warped version of it where they focus on one thing or the other and sort of miss like the forest for the trees. So certainly it is possible that Paul or anyone living at this time would have seen that, not, not every person seems to get, you know, like some people lose the forest for the trees, but that, you know, that's always true. That doesn't mean that's how the religion is set up to be or how most people practice right.
1: it. Right. And I, I actually think that, I actually think that's the critique that Paul is making. I mean, he's, yeah. Paul's not actually critiquing Judaism here. He's trying to make a positive statement about Gentiles. But yeah. what, what Paul is saying is the God who makes the circumcised righteous by faith will also make the one who isn't circumcised righteous through faith. Yes. And so Paul is saying, for the Jews, God makes them righteous through faith. For Gentiles, God makes them righteous through faith. And he's challenging the warp, as you describe it, of people from whichever background who think that they can justify themselves.
2: Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep. That I'm doing this myself. You gave me this set of boxes to check. I'm going to check all the boxes. And now I am... Yes. No, I totally agree. If, yeah. if we're thinking of the law as being cut off from any real sense of faith, then, then it gets super weird.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Paul is challenging a warp of the Jewish faith, and he's also challenging a warp of the Christian faith, yeah. which is to say the idea that we can somehow earn our way or justify. We're, we are responding to God's faithfulness in faith, and that is then the carrying out of the law. So it's important to me there that he says the same God who makes the circumcised righteous will Mm -hmm. also make the Gentiles righteous because it's acknowledging the sorts of, I don't know if we want to think of it as two covenants or the extension of the one covenant or exactly how we want to frame that. But God who is faithful in the, has been and continues to be faithful in the instance of the Jews is also now faithful in this new sort of thing that's happening in Jesus Mm -hmm. to the Gentiles. That seems pretty important. Mm -hmm. Verse 31 is not in the reading, but it actually seems important to me. Uh, Paul says, do we then cancel the law through faith? Absolutely not. Instead, we confirm the law, which I think gets to your original question, which is, is Paul saying then throw everything out? Yeah, I think he's not saying that. I think Paul is saying that you can't start there. Mm -hmm. Like you do the ethical commands that are in the Torah in response to God's faithfulness. Through right. your faith, right. and then you do. Then there comes the law. Right. I do think he thinks we can throw out some ritual ideas. Like, I mean, he definitely doesn't want people Gentiles getting circumcised and things yeah. like that. But yeah,
2: yeah. No, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. It. It's really easy to get focused on what you can see and not sort of what is what is the way of being or the sense of the world that really underlies that. But yeah, if the law, if following the law is an outgrowth of faith and, you know, as the Hebrew Bible would say, sort of like fear of God, like a real sense of awe of, at the divine, then that's a really different thing than just saying, this is what we do because this is what we do.
0: Right. Hi, my name is John Weicker and I am the associate pastor for youth and their families at First Presbyterian Church of Durham, North Carolina. I am a Bible Worm supporter at the Bible Worm supporter level, $48 per year. And I do that not because we're on the narrative lectionary or even because I preach that often, although when I do preach and the texts line up, I certainly use the podcast. I actually use Bible Worm as my own personal devotion for the week. I'm someone who misses the deep theology and close reading of texts that I got to do a lot of in seminary. And in Bobby and Amy's work, I found that again. And so I listen on Monday mornings on my way over to church and then Monday afternoons on the way back as a way to prepare for the week, to do ministry, and to love Jesus and serve. I hope you'll join me in becoming a Bible supporter too. And now back to this week's episode.
1: Amy, are there other things that you think we need to pull out of this bit from chapter three?
2: I think we've touched on most of, the, most of the questions that rose up for me when I was reading it.
1: That really is a prelude to try to get us in the mindset to think about what I think is the core of the narrative lectionary text for this time, which is 5, 1 to 11. So with that conversation in mind about how people are made righteous before God, then let's jump down to chapter 5. I'm just going to split this in two sections. So I'll start up with 5, 1 to 5. I'm reading in the common English Bible as I always do and as I was just doing, but I'm not (laughs) sure I said that. Therefore, since we have been made righteous through his faithfulness, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have access by faith into this grace in which we stand through him and we boast in the hope of God's glory. But not only that, we even take pride in our problems because we know that trouble produces endurance. Endurance produces character and character produces hope. This hope doesn't put us to shame because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Okay, so when we pick up in one, i I'm curious what the NRSV reads. The CEB, mm. we have been made righteous through his faithfulness. What does the oh. NRSV have there?
2: This, my translation feels very different. Therefore, since we are justified by faith. Yeah. Yeah, that's so different. Like where, I mean, faith versus faithfulness, but also where it is originating.
1: Yes. So the one, the one issue there is the Greek pistis, which kind of can mean mm-hmm. both of those things, like faithfulness, faith, trust, mm-hmm. something like that. And then the question of whose faith is it the CEB has made one a, a fairly clear <laughs> decision. Interpretively, we haven't through his faithfulness, which is either yes, either God's faithfulness or Jesus's faithfulness. The Greek is actually ambivalent about it in the way that the NRSV I think captures a little bit better through faith. And does that mean our faith or does that mean God's faith? And I, I mean the 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 greek allows us to read either way and so it depends a little bit on one's theological presuppositions i think yeah can you talk a little bit about what you know you you said whoa that's really different can you talk a little bit about what difference you see if depending on which way you read it
2: i mean i, I also have a difference in the in some of the language before that i think yours we are yours was we are made righteous mhm yes and mine is we are justified
1: We should talk about that. What, the the question of what justification means is not entirely clear. The made righteous through, I don't know if that's any clearer (laughs) or not. I know.
2: I'm not sure. I mean, when I read justified, I really had the sense of like, this is pretty stark, but like you have a right to be here.
1: Yeah. Where's the here?
2: Hmm. I mean, I thought of it first, I was thinking of, um, (laughs) I was thinking of like Desiderata, like you have a right to be here, like the, you know, birds in the trees or whatever it is in that poem. Yeah. I almost just want to say like, you have a right to exist. Like you don't have to prove your worthiness. Yeah. But if it is by faith, it's, you, you do have to do what everything in your power to, really lean into faithfulness. Like that is the thing that will justify you, but, but it's on you to do it. Yeah. And it's not, it's different because it's not like performative. It's not like anyone else can see it. It's not, you know, competitive. So it's a very different kind of justification than a lot of, I guess, a lot of folks might expect what would, what would make you seem worthy within a, you know, in comparison to your peers. But then, if it's turned around to like it's God's faithfulness, oh man, I don't know. That's that makes my head hurt a little bit.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I think that's entirely reasonable that it would like Paul makes makes one's head hurt for sure. I I love the way you're talking about justification and righteousness. You know, in a Christian shorthand, sometimes it gets turned into like salvation or like Mm. what happens to your eternal soul, which I, I think is part of it, but. This idea yeah, that you Jews don't
2: think about that, so I don't know. yeah,
1: <laughs> which I think is very helpful in some ways. Like, yeah, I think if Christians would think about it sort of down the line a little bit, it's an important part of the faith, but it's not the, the thing as it often is understood. But this idea that you have a right to be here—if that's understood as you have a right to be in the presence of God—I
0: mm-hmm.
1: think that gets really close. There's a sense in in Paul's work in which humans are alienated from God by the power of sin, by the power of death. Mm -hmm. And so we, we we can't just stand in God's presence Mm -hmm. in Paul's understanding, which I mean, is Mm -hmm. not unique to Paul, but what this text then is saying is, but now you can, you do have a right to be here. You can stand in God's presence. You can be treated as righteous, not because you actually, earned it in any kind of a way, and we'll see how that develops here, but Mm -hmm. through faith. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: The issue that you're raising about faith and exactly whose faith is it and what is that, like how much do you have to do to be Mm -hmm. considered faithful is a really important and complicated theological question, and different traditions have settled that in different ways. So if you say like, what does faith mean? Does it mean you just have to say, I believe in Jesus, or does it mean you have to live your life? from the time you get up in the morning till the time you go to bed at night every single day, as though you trust Jesus, like, what does that mean? What's the bar? Then you get back into this question of, you know, can you earn your own salvation basically? Mm -hmm. Or can you earn your own justification? This is why I want to read it through that passage we read last week, through faith for faith. And we Mm -hmm. talked about God's faith, which inspires faith in us, something like that. And so it's God's move, God's first move. God trusted Abraham first and then Abraham trusted God back. Right. Yeah. Like it's that same yeah. idea because if it's, if it's the case that God's just like, Hey y'all, you know, hands off. Like if you, if you can step up and show you trust me, yeah. then yeah. you can deserve to be here. Like that makes me really nervous.
2: No, say, I, I say this I as a
1: Presbyterian, that. which is. No
2: Bobby, I love that. And I love the idea that what's, what really is a just, justific- it, it's the mutuality of it. It's the, Yes, it's the system because I yes. think similarly. If you take it out of out of anything on that's coming forth from me entirely and say it's just God, that for me feels like too passive in a way. Like I don't know, you, I, I want to be in it a little bit more than that. But that that mutuality you described really—you are in it, and you are not alone in it. Yes. And we can, ins- you know, it can be inspired in you and and you can feed the system and, and yeah, all those things. I like that a lot.
1: The second half of this passage is going to try to deal with this a little more directly, I think. So I think we can come back to this conversation. Uh, But I think, I think where we have landed now is a, is a good place to be. The the main clause here is we have peace Mm. with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, which I just thought like we have the, the peace is not exactly where one might think you are headed. Do you have thoughts about that idea of we have peace? I mean,
2: for me, again, like I'm translating between two religious traditions that that center in two different languages. But when I read peace in this kind of context, I think of shalom, which it means wholeness. Like we are whole in our relationship with God. Yeah. Which to me is, is both sort of we are wholly in it. We are not only giving... Sort of lip service or check boxes or whatever. And also, we're not, we don't have to hold back or hide or be ashamed of yes. parts of ourselves. Like we can, we can be whole. We can be whole in that relationship.
1: I love that. So, not just a sense of we, not are, just we now calm. have calm. yeah. So, we have, we now have a restored relationship with God in some way. But it's actually, I love that emphasis on the wholeness, like be yourself, like all your stuff, like you Mm -hmm. can trust, you can be confident that that relationship is whole and complete. I really like that a lot. There's an interesting thing happening. I don't quite know what to do with it, where, you know, we've been reading all all spring through this sort of empire and faith, like, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: like comparison or contrast, I guess. And I think uh, N.T. Wright was pointing out this idea like Rome used this language of Rome has established the Pax Romana, right? The peace through justice, justification, and Mm. the Caesars claimed titles for themselves like Lord and like Savior. And so we've got a lot of that same language here, but it's not at all about the empire, And so one way of reading this is sort of in this sort of purely religious sense, we've been religiously, we've been restored and how beautiful is that? But there is also this sort of political edge that one can read here, which says the empire thinks it is offering you peace and justice through the Lord and the savior, which is Caesar. But in fact, it's a false peace. It's an an untrue justice. It is not the real Lord. It is not the true savior and so then, this sort of Christian thing is offering you true peace in all of those ways, whereas the the Roman peace being offered to you is a a sham, basically. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. That's really helpful context because it is speaking, yeah, speaking speaking the language of that place in that time and that the other ideas that are sort of in the in the marketplace of ideas, you know, where yeah. they are but but sort of turning and turning them on their head in some ways in the way that the new testament does so beautifully all over the place.
1: Yeah. I like that too and especially since Paul's writing to the Romans in Rome like mm-hmm. right in the seat of the empire where this language is all around them. I'm always trying to figure out how would you like trans, translate that into American, you know, yeah. culture and it would like it would be something like Jesus offers us Liberty and justice for all, or something like that. You know,
2: mm-hmm.
1: like a uh, mm-hmm. something that's so familiar. As soon as you hear the phrase, you understand exactly what we're talking about. But it's not framed in the empire doing this, but in Jesus doing this.
2: I feel like it would become a meme in our our current days. It would, <laughs> it totally would. Like would totally yeah. cheapens it. Like it makes. I don't like that. That's what I think. But
1: yeah. It, and then it, it would seems, get co-opted immediately, too. It would too. totally be
2: co-opted. Oh, my gosh. You wouldn't know the origin of anything. Maybe AI did yeah.
1: it. I'm then be like AI, a, Bobby. Me, too, a little bit. I try not yeah, to think I'm, about I'm it too afraid. much.
2: <laughs> People keep asking me if I use it, and I'm like, no, because then you're training it. Yeah. I want to train it. <laughs> okay, that's a separate topic. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: No, I can totally see that meme where you end up with, like, there's, like, a cross and an American flag in the background and a, and a bald eagle. And oh, it says God. liberty and justice for all. And yeah. it's sort of saying, like, the Jesus thing and the American thing are the same yeah. thing. Yeah,
2: like, well, okay, so that would be one way to read it that would make me very nervous. Yes. Because now you're saying the empire is the religion. But I think if there were, you could have a more sophisticated meme, I don't know if we have any meme, de- meme design, design nerds in our audience, but where somehow it raises the question— which of these, what do we actually mean by liberty and justice for all? Oh, yeah. And yeah. which of these worlds of thought? And systems of power actually produce liberty and justice for all.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what Paul's doing. Paul's trying to draw the contrast. Yeah. And that you have, you just have a lot more confidence in the memosphere than I do. Because I'm know. like. Well, yeah,
2: I know you're trying. Yes. Your this is going to is immediately like get co-opted. Nationalistic, yeah. Oh, yes. It would immediately be co-opted. That's Yeah, yeah,
1: me. yeah. I don't mean that that's what Paul's saying. I mean that somebody very quickly would make that be what Paul is saying. When Paul is, in fact, saying the is opposite saying of pretty that. pretty much
2: the opposite of which that.
1: Which is what you're saying, which is like, let's contrast Correct. these two things. Yeah. 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 So do we really have peace and justice through uh, Caesar? No, we do not. We really have peace and justice through Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so that's the contrast Paul is making. Now, Amy, this starting in verse three. I don't know. I don't know okay. what I make of this. And the Bible Worm Collaborative had lots of thoughts about this idea mm. that we take pride in problems because Trouble produces endurance. Endurance character. Character hope. I think anytime you start with, we should rejoice in our Mm -hmm. problems, or we should rejoice in our Mm -hmm. suffering. Mm -hmm. I think there's like you start to bristle just a little bit. Mm -hmm. I'm curious how you read this verse and what what you're making of it.
2: I I definitely felt the bristle, and also thought of. This, I don't know why this particular Jewish text came into my mind, but there's a, a teaching in the Talmud about, uh, there's this conversation about who is who should be a prayer leader for a community. Like, what does it really, if you have a group of people, who's going to stand up and offer prayer on behalf of the community who merits that honor? Yes. And so there's a discussion of like, it could be the most learned person. Maybe it could be an elder in the community. And finally, the text settles not on those things, but it says it should be a person who has dependent children without the means to care for them
0: oh. and
2: who, ha- who has to toil in the field and his house is empty because his prayers are
1: real. Oh, my goodness. That is profound.
2: That's a good text, right? That is an
1: amazing text.
2: It's hard to, it's hard to really pray for real, real if you have not experienced this kind of profound vulnerability. Yes.
1: I love that, Amy. The, the way that that gets talked about at Canvas community and at Mercy Church is you can only really speak a word of hope to people who are going through it as the language is, if you've been down through it yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think that's right. Mm-hmm. And it, that's sort of the you know the streets version of what the Talmud is saying. I think somebody yeah, who
2: I think ha- that's right
1: has had to struggle. It mm-hmm. doesn't mean that we should seek out struggle,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but it does mean that there is value in the struggle and especially in the survival of the struggle.
2: Yes, and it doesn't mean I think importantly that the struggle is not a real struggle. Right. Like, if you're saying be happy for your suffering, well, if you're happy about it, like, what you can dr- you can derive meaning from it, maybe in the moment. Often for me, not in the moment.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs>
2: Later. And, but I think it's really easy to to slip into the well. Don't don't actually suffer in your suffering. Yeah. Because it's all for the good. Well, yeah. Um. Maybe, I mean I don't know. There will there will be whatever, there will be what there will be. And you may very well be able to derive meaning and connection through it and to weave good from it. But the suffering is suffering.
1: Yeah. And then one of the things I really like in this Romans text is that it's a three-stage process from suffering to hope, right? So suffering produces patience. And there's not the assumption that you should immediately be patient when you suffer. It's that when you are suffering you learn how to be patient like you learn how to make a way in your circumstance and then as you learn that that produces character and then as you develop character you l- learn to embrace hope so as there's not i mean you can there's a potentially a very long process between there yeah that is, doesn't erase the suffering at all and doesn't push toward hope immediately and says you've got to you've got to find a way to survive and then once you have become a survivor, then you, you have hope and you can speak hope to others as well. I think that's right. Yeah. I don't know what to do with, in the CEB verse 5, this hope doesn't put us to shame. Mm-hmm. Because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. What is the NRSV in that very first phrase?
2: And hope does not disappoint us. That's pretty different.
1: That is pretty different. Just intuitively, I like that a lot better. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out why you would be ashamed. I guess maybe maybe why would you be ashamed of hope is that if your circumstances look really dire and yet you are a hopeful person, maybe mm-hmm. people think of you as like silly or not real or dishonest or something.
2: Yeah.
1: When you read it in the NRSV, what, what did you do with it?
2: I mean, I think I didn't focus on that phrase really mm. in particular so much as like it prompted me to think about my own moments of like real suffering and and surrender where like you, mm. you know, going back to the texts that, that we were just talking about where it's like you have to give up the idea that you're controlling things. Yes and so sometimes your your life situation or your suffering has to push you to the point where you have absolutely exhausted yourself trying to make things better and make things go a different yes. way to make the suffering stop you have to try all the things and it's terrible and exhausting but until you've done it you don't really get to that point of of surrender and there is a hopefulness in surrender like there is a there is a I don't know. Almost like a relief in like, oh, I'm really not driving this train, and so I need to figure out a different way to interact with this. With to be with what is happening. Yes. Like I need to. I need to figure out a different way. How that ties to shame? Yeah. I uh, my I have a note in my study Bible that literally it says hope is not ashamed. So maybe it is, yeah, maybe it is that like it's, it's illogical to feel hope in that to be completely brought to your knees by a situation and be like, "That's what I needed in mm-hmm. order to, to feel hope, but maybe it's hope in something else. Mm-hmm. Hope not in your own efforts. Yeah. You've given up. You've given up on those.
1: No, I think that's exactly right. In the end of that verse, the love of God has been poured into our hearts, and so it is exactly something else, and the exactly something else is the love of God. And so when you get to the bottom, there's love. Yeah. And it's not that you earned it or did it, but that God is faithful. And you have a shalom relationship Mm -hmm. in which there is wholeness. And so God's love is, God's love is there. And that's the source of the hope. And maybe you have to dig through some stuff to get there, but that's where, that's where it comes out.
2: Bobby you you told in our in our early conversations before we even started the text today you you told a story of encountering someone who you asked how she was doing, and she shook her head and said, "Okay, and so mm-hmm. I joked it depends what we mean by okay, but a lot of times that is my that is my most sort of hopeful or faithful or I don't know answer to that question is like I do actually think that things will be okay, and I am okay. That does not mean it is what I want that right. is does not mean I feel very happy with the current state of things or that I even know what, okay. Like there's a, it's a real surrender type of, okay. Like things will be okay because whatever happens is what is supposed to happen. And, and there is a, there's a freedom in that.
1: Yeah. I really love that. All right. I mean, with that in mind, let's move on to the last part and see how it develops these ideas. And then I, I think some of these through lines will probably come back Come back again.
2: Good. I hope so. This this is the section where I have a lot of question marks in the margins. So,
1: so many questions. Yeah. So we'll many see how questions. We, we'll see how we can deal with that. Yeah. All right. Picking up in verse six. While we were still weak, at the right moment, Christ died for ungodly people. It isn't often that someone will die for a righteous person, though maybe someone might dare to die for a good person. But God shows his love for us because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So now that we have been made righteous by his blood, we can be even more certain that we will be saved from God's wrath through him. If we were reconciled to God through the death of his son while we were still enemies, now that we have been reconciled, how much more certain is it that we will be saved by his life? And not only that, we even take pride in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, the one through whom we now have a restored relationship with God. What possible question marks could you have had
2: about that <laughs> perfectly clear gotcha
1: so i mean the essence of this is a rabbinic form of argumentation called the calva homer right mm-hmm. is it homer or homer I, I i just i just i would say
2: ho, no i think it's ho. i think homer.
1: it's, ho. I think it's ho. <laughs> <Kalv-Homer>. <laughs> can you just remind us like just, I mean, not necessarily with the relation to this, but just like how Cal Yeah, homer what works. that is.
2: Yeah, Cal means light and Chomer means heavy. And so it's, it's like one of these examples where it's like, if it's true with this like lightweight thing, this, you know, thing that is sort of obviously true to us, all the more so would it be true in this other, it's like a microcosm and a macrocosm or, you know, something like
1: that. Yeah. So in this case, you know, we've just been talking about how people were at, odds with God in some way or another. And then Christ's crucifixion resurrection made us righteous or made us justified before God. So the Calvin Homer that's here, like just in broadest sweeps is if Christ were willing to die for us while we were Mm -hmm. alienated from God, Mm -hmm. how much more so Mm -hmm. can we have confidence that Christ is going to save us from trouble that is to come, for the wrath of God that is to come, now that we are made right with God. That's the essence. There's a lot of complication down in the details, but does that sound right to you?
2: Yes. I think it, I think that makes sense. And I think, you know, just to like, I don't know, call a spade a spade. I think my, my struggle with this section more than anything is just like the <laughs> Christian theology. Oh, I'm like, yeah. I don't understand. What does is, what is dying have to do with anything? Why does blood have to be able? like, whatever? Right. Oh, those just, are great questions. It's yeah. not that I don't understand, I guess, the like logically, it's more that I disagree with it, which is a good sign for me as a Jewish person.
1: It is, it is a good sign. <laughs> yeah. No, I, and but I think in order to wrestle with those kind of details, like making sure we're all on the same page about like what yeah. is actually being said here. Yes, in the big picture is important, and I think, I think that is. I effective. think that that is what is happening here. Yes,
2: at your at the the lowest moment, still Jesus gave His life for your salvation, and and so yes, and so now you're not in that super low moment anymore. So all the more so, rejoice in faith that God's got your back.
1: Yeah. Now. I mean, so the question of why is death necessary to restore right relationship with God is super complicated. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and, um, for sure. And, uh, yeah, ongoing uh, contentious argument about whether what that means and whether that is useful. I want to start, though, in verse 7, which is yeah. equally confusing to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, you know, so Christ died for ungodly people. Okay, it is it isn't often that someone will die for a righteous person, though some may die, may dare to die for a good person. Mm-hmm. Paul is up to something there. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. I know there's something in that distinguishing between righteous and good. That's where one of my question marks is. Yeah. I, I, I am kind of, I think, projecting based on what I've seen earlier in the passage that by righteous, I almost read it as like self-righteous or, you know, someone who, yeah has checked all the boxes and does all yeah. the things and therefore feels that they are right with God versus someone who is good, which is more of, I guess, this, like, general, internal, essential characteristic that that Paul is, uh, I, I guess, saying, like, it's more, like, we can all tell who's just being sort of self-righteous and, and who is, like, essentially a good human being. It's possible you would die for a good human being. Maybe not, you know, probably not, but it's possible. You would not do it for someone who checks all the boxes, but doesn't seem like a good human being. Yeah. And then there's the, and then, you know, Christ who does it for.
1: Right. so then the contrast is, but we weren't even, we weren't either one of those, right? We were terrible people. And so, you know, how, even though we can imagine these cases where somebody might be willing to die for someone else. Um, we weren't even that, and yet Christ still died for us. That that seems to be the crux mm-hmm. of Paul's argument.
2: Do you think good here is connected to faithfulness? Like, is it does Paul really believe that no one was a good human being before?
1: Yeah, I mean, so that question is a uh, yeah. The way you have read it is the way that it is often read, and I think it's a totally legitimate way to read it.
2: Oh, good. Give me another one.
1: One of the things that you can't see in the English, but N.T. Wright pointed it out to me, and it's true, is that it is a righteous person in Greek, but it's the good person in Greek. So there's a definite article there. And so Mm -hmm. his question is like, well, so then what does the good person mean? So it's not a category. It's a, I mean, I don't know quite Mm -hmm. what you want to do with it, but they're not exactly parallel. It is a good person and the where he goes with it is either reading it through the idea that Jesus is the good person, in which case he's talking about Christian martyrs, right? So some of us reading this Mm. letter might be willing to die for the good person, which is for Jesus.
2: That's very different.
1: Very different. Mm -hmm. The reading that I am more compelled by And you will understand why as soon as I say it, because it's it's such a thing for me, is that this is actually critiquing the Roman benefactor system in which the good person is like your benefactor, right? And so in this sort of patron-client relationship where every person has a person who's more important than them, who like looks out for them, Mm -hmm. and then they owe them allegiance. And that keeps going up and Mm -hmm. up and up until you get to Caesar, Mm -hmm. who is the benefactor of all. That maybe what Paul is saying Well, some, some people are willing to die for the, the benefactor above them. Like they're willing mm-hmm. to die for the hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. ultimately, they're willing to die for the empire, for oh, Caesar.
2: I love that.
1: And so then the whole thing becomes a critique of that. Yes. Like dying for the good person then is like, this is what the empire expects you to do, is to die for mm-hmm. the person above you. Mm-hmm. But Christ is not about that. Christ is about dying for the person the furthest below you that you could imagine, Mm -hmm. not you doing Mm -hmm. it, but him doing it. Mm -hmm. And so he's shattered the whole patronage system.
2: I love that for many reasons, but one of them is that I am troubled by my own interpretation of the word righteous as self-righteous, because that's not usually how the word righteous is used. But in this case, what what it's saying is like, you wouldn't die for a good person, (laughs) like a individual person who is, Righteous in the sense of like right. good, but you would die for the empire because yes. that's how we've all been trained. That in you the logic go to war, of war, you're yeah. a soldier, you do whatever you have to do to serve the empire. Yeah, yeah, I love that.
1: So, in the logic of the empire, you would never die for somebody who's just like a right. righteous person who's doing the right mm-hmm. thing. You would die for the benefactor system or for the hierarchy or for the emperor.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And Christ is not playing the empire game. Christ is willing to die not even for a righteous person but mm-hmm. for an ungodly person the most alienated mm-hmm. person. To me that's how that's how I to make the that. most sense of it. Absolutely. Then the question of why is a death necessary? I mean I struggle with I struggle with the crucifixion in lots of ways but the way that I tend to come back to it and make the most sense of it is the crucifixion which for, for Paul and for me can't really be separated from the resurrection is the acknowledgement that the power that the empire wields, the power of sin and death, to which we are all held captive, isn't a real power. And so it's Christ entering into that system, taking the worst the empire can give on behalf of the least important person in the empire, and then demonstrating that, in fact, that had no power and that life is possible, that doesn't require the empire, that doesn't require the ultimate power of death and sin. And so the whole system has become broken. So if you, if you can trust that, if you can live in that, then therein lies salvation, therein lies justification. That's how I get there. There's lots Mm -hmm. of other ways of getting there. Yeah. I'm curious what you're uh, thinking.
2: No, I mean, I think that makes sense. And what I'm thinking, I'm afraid to say it because it might be dumb once it comes out of my mouth, but then we can just edit it out. (laughs) If Jesus died, but but the death is immediately connected to the resurrection, doesn't that kind of like make the willingness to die a little less impressive? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, because it's really playing up the death thing here. Like, you're not willing to die for a righteous person, but Jesus would die for an ungodly person. But if Jesus, if the death is immediately resurrection, then that's not that impressive.
1: Yeah, so this is one of the reasons why Mark is my favorite crucifixion story and Matthew. Because what Jesus says on the cross in Mark and Matthew is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah, yeah. Which means at the end of his life, Jesus didn't know that resurrection was the end of the story he trusted that resurrection was the end of the story. And it turned out that it was, but there was a mm-hmm. three day period in which death appeared to have won. And mm-hmm. human beings are in a very similar circumstance in which death appears to still be winning. And we have to trust that in fact, life wins on the other side. And Jesus did that exact same thing. So yeah, I agree with you that if it's immediate mm-hmm. and like Jesus immortal soul like wafted up from the cross into the heavens Mm -hmm. that that's cheap, but that's not the way that I think the story is best understood. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that.
1: The next couple of verses kind of seem like they're just driving that point home. And so I don't know, you know, on the one hand we have this image of being made righteous by blood. Uh, And so It is Christ's willingness to die for human beings that has broken the power over us and restored us to God's reign or something like that. And then while we were yet enemies, we've been reconciled. How much more? We get the Calva homer again. How much more so that we will be saved by his life?
2: Bobby, I'm thinking back to the first verse of chapter five, where we talked about, my translation's a little bit different, but we are justified by faith. Yes. And holding that now alongside, we have been justified by his blood.
1: Yes. yes and at yes. first
2: my mind sort of went like, well, which one is it? Like, <laughs> yeah. But then it went to the, the way that you sort of um, complicated the idea of faith for us, I think in a really fruitful way, that it's it is faithfulness and mutuality. And so when it says by his blood, it's not, it's sort of that as this this first and most grand display of faithfulness that is then met with faithfulness that is then met with faithfulness. Yes. But it's not that there's sort of this like, you know, almost magical. It was the, you know, and I, and I say that as someone who like in the, in the biblical, in the Hebrew Bible, like blood in, in the world of sacrifice in the world of the temple seems to have like a, a cleansing power in the in the world of holiness in the temple whatever we're not going to get into that but i really like here tying it to the fact that there was blood yes was this this like outpouring of yes. commitment and faithfulness that Paul does some,
1: sometimes talk about blood in the in the other way that you're suggesting yes. um sort of sacrificial atonement and christ mm-hmm. as Christ's blood has a cleansing effect, much along the lines of the temple system. Yeah. And I think one could read this passage that way, but I myself think it's richer to read it the way you're reading it, which is Christ being willing to die is the mark of Christ's faithfulness. And and that is the beginning of the of the reconciliation. I think that, to me, makes more sense of where this passage is headed.
2: Well, I think it makes more sense because just a few verses ago, we already said we are justified by faith, yes, faithfulness, and now it's we are justified by blood. I mean, I guess it could be both, but those are two really different justification systems.
1: The other thing that I almost skipped past, but then I decided it would be irresponsible, is this language in verse (laughs) 9 about being saved from God's wrath Mm -hmm. and so, I mean the so first of all Romans the text doesn't actually say God's wrath it just says wrath, but I mm. I think it's God's wrath even like I don't know any other good way to explain it yeah uh, so I think we should probably read it as God's wrath unless you have other ideas but if it do you I mean I, do you just have any thoughts about that like. Turns it's out so it's God's jarring. Wrath.
2: It's really it jarring in the middle of this. Like we are been about just,
1: peace and love and about reconciliation and, and
2: mutuality and peace and yes, all that stuff. And then it's like this will save you from the wrath of God or the wrath. In which case, I almost want to capitalize it like the wrath. Right.
1: Yeah, that should be the next Stranger Things uh, <laughs> villain. Is <laughs> the wrath? The
2: wrath. Yes. <laughs>
1: I'm going to write the, what are those guys' names? I forgot their names now. Anyway.
2: I mean, I, I guess I could think of the wrath as being sort of a reference to this. I oh, don't know. I want to say this system in which you have to be justified through, you, you have to prove yourself. Yeah. And if you can't, like you might actually not be worthy and you have to prove yeah. yourself. And if you're not worthy, then you will you know, suffer the consequences of that. But I really liked it before this line when I could sort of say, when I could read it as like, that is fundamentally not true. That is right. not how the system works. It's not, that, it's not that we're giving you an out from that. We're not giving you a hallway pass. It's that that is not how the system works. Right. And then with this put in here, it's sort of, I mean, I guess it could be a reference to how people thought it worked, although I imagine – that Paul actually probably did think there was wrath of God. Mm-hmm. So it sits more uncomfortably for me.
1: Yeah, and no, I think that's exactly right. So one can read it as the wrath of God against unjustified people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. However we want to understand unjustified people. So whether they, they have tried to justify themselves through the law and have failed or whether they just haven't tried at all. I, I think one can read it that way. And, and so then then Paul would be saying, We don't have to experience that wrath because we trust in Jesus. I think it is also possible to read God's coming wrath as wrath against the empire. And it would take us back to a text like Daniel 7, or we've talked about it in Matthew, where God's re-entry into history involves the judgment of, and therefore the wrath against, the ruling powers of the world that are manifest in the present but are in opposition to God's kingdom. If you read it that way, then God's wrath against Rome is going to catch all the people who continue to put their trust in Rome. And it's not going to catch up in some way or another. And I don't quite know the mechanism people who have already put their trust in God. And so it's then God is not wrathful against people. Exactly. God is wrathful against the system of the empire, but that has implications for people. What is, do you have any thoughts about that?
2: I mean, I do, I like that interpretation better. I like that interpretation better. It gives me a little more breathing room because I think that, I, I mean, I think <laughs> you and I can, you and I really sort of co-sign on the idea that the uh, the empire, the proverbial empire or the actual Roman empire here are are really the, the system that is, that That, we're, that is the, the powerful force that we are working against. So deferring the wrath to the empire is more comfortable than thinking about individual individual people, I
1: yeah. guess. Yeah. I think these are the options. And I think interpreters can make decisions about which way mm-hmm. we're going to read it. And I choose to read it systemically. This very last verse has the notion, in the CEB, it's, we take pride in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that, what's the verb in the, like- We boast. Yeah. Yeah. That's just such an interesting, like, boasting or being, taking pride in, or like, do you have thoughts about that? Like, the word boast, I think the CEB avoids it because boasting is often thought of as negative. Yeah. I'm not sure this is meant to be negative.
2: I don't think it, well- Yeah. I don't think it's meant to be negative here. I mean, I think, I think the more generous and possibly generative way to understand it is that again, it's sort of inverting the whole system. Like the idea that you're boasting about something that you didn't do.
1: Like (laughs) (laughs) what do you
2: have to do with this? Nothing. I mean, not nothing, but like you're, you're what you are lifting up and most proud of in the world is something that you didn't do yeah and so I think that I don't really know how to fit the word boast with it other than let's see what what can we say about boasting? You are you are I just associate it so much with like personal accomplishment. I don't yeah I don't know how to think of it as okay, you can boast about your children, but you still want credit for it. Like when right. you're boasting, you want credit for something. So maybe that's entirely what it's put like, Putting on a tad, like if you're gonna go around town blasting people with some kind of "Hey, you wouldn't believe this," yeah, let it be about God instead of about yeah. when your kids got into the honor society.
1: <laughs> yeah, although that's pretty cool too. I, I will say, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and take pride in has the same the same idea. So then, I so then I think what what he's got in mind is people saying like, "Hey, guess what God did for me," which. And guess what Jesus did for me, yeah. which I think is, like, I, I, yeah, you know, that, yeah. I don't know how I feel about the, like, bragging about things in general, although I probably do it. But but I, I agree with you. If you're going to brag about something, then brag about how God acted on your behalf. And there's an invitation implied, not exactly right here, but in Romans in general, is that, like, God also has done this for anyone and so we we can all take yeah. pride in that. So it's not a boasting that's like trying to set yourself apart from other people, but it's actually trying to be invitation. Yeah, I,
2: the only way that I can understand boasting here that doesn't make me deeply uncomfortable is almost ironic. Yeah. That like, of course, you're not, you can't take credit for it. Yeah. Because if we're thinking about boasting about what God does in our lives, you could read that as like, God loves me the mostest. And right. like, that's <laughs> terrible. Don't do that. Yeah. Like, don't do that. Yeah. But if we can take it as, like, it's it's absurd to take credit for <laughs> for what God does in your life, then yeah. I think there's, there's something there.
1: All right, Amy. Well, we have come to the end of Romans 5, 1 to 11, and plus that little bit in chapter 3. And I'm interested in what you're thinking as you are trying to work through what might be a message from this text for the world today.
2: Yeah. I mean, Bobby, I think that the message that's really sort of rising up for me is sort of like what, what our old professor, David Peterson, would say, like a little simple-minded. Like it's mm-hmm. a little – which is kind of funny because it's a very complicated task text, text. And it also is a little bit from the world of memes, unfortunately. But I just – what I keep seeing in here is like you are enough. Yeah. and And that thought – that you don't have to constantly justify your existence through your through accomplishments yes opens up the possibility for like mutuality and vulnerability that is required by faith but you Somewhere in there, you have to believe that you don't have to prove yourself. Or maybe that you can't. Like, maybe you, maybe you have to get there through suffering, and you really try all the ways to prove yourself, and you're like, oh, I see what, I see. how this is going to go. Yes. But I think sort of either at the bottom of that tunnel or, or somewhere along the line, you have to come to this belief that, yeah, you are, as this text would say, you are justified. You have a right to be here. Mm-hmm. And that opens up all kinds of other things. That's my simple mind. That's my meme. If you want to meme this one, <laughs> there you go,
1: Paul. Lesley. I love that, Amy. And you know, with with David Peterson, it was always the question or the statement that he prefaced with "This is simple minded" was always like incisive and straight to the point. Yes,
2: right, straight to straight to the point.
1: And I think mm-hmm. I think you are enough is exactly that. It's simple minded in that sense of like it should be clear enough and also urgently important and something often overlooked.
2: What about you, Bobby?
1: I think my thoughts are somewhere similar. I think what I would add to that from the Christian perspective is that you are enough, which has been demonstrated by the fact that Christ was willing to give himself even while we were being our human selves, right? Mm -hmm. And this language that we've tapped into about not, people won't die for a righteous person. They might die for the next person up the ladder. Christ died for y'all in all your mess. To me is a beautiful message of our enoughness. It is also a call for us to question the, hierarchies Mm -hmm. and the sort of ways in which we are taught to value some lives as more than others. Mm -hmm. And so because we are enough, we also recognize that you are enough and they are enough. And that person over there is enough. And I keep coming back to this, that Talmud passage that you brought out about the person who maybe has the most to teach us is the person who's been down through some stuff mm-hmm. and that not only are they enough, even though they're not the more important person in the hierarchy, probably, but they may actually be the one we need to be looking up to. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the philosophy of Mercy Church and of Canvas Community and short order. But I think it's a really beautiful idea. I don't know that Paul is saying that exactly, but it's a short step from Paul. hmm To Mm -hmm. say because Christ was willing to give himself up for people in all their messiness, we should be willing to do that too. And we should be careful about the kinds of commitments that are demanding our lives from us Mm -hmm. and whether they really warrant that, whether they really deserve that.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful, Bobby.
1: All right, Amy, we will continue on next time. And Paul's letter to the Romans will be in chapter 6, verses
2: 1 to 14. Alrighty. I'll be here.
1: All right. I'll see you then.
2: Okay. Bye.
1: Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash BibleWormPodcast for details.
2: BibleWorm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters for helping to make this podcast possible.
1: Join us next time when we'll continue our exploration of Paul's letter to the Romans with Romans 6, 1-14. Until then... Bond digging.